Hello from Brooklyn. I'm Brendan Hart, and welcome to Super Cities, a no BS deep dive conversation about the people and trends moving cities forward. All views expressed are my own and do not reflect our sponsors or partners. Let's get into it. On this episode of Super Cities, we do a deep dive on smart cities, public-private ecosystems, and global innovation with Jerry Holton, founder of Global Futures Group. Jerry has a long career in innovation, from the Pentagon to NYU Poly, where he was president. Jerry has been at the center of some of the most important trends in New York City and beyond. He's now using that expertise to help cities around the world increase innovation. Let's hear from Jerry. So we are... Glad to welcome Jerry Holton. Jerry, thanks. Hey, good to be here. Good to see you. Good to see you. Can we can, can we just start with some some context about how you ended up working on issues related to smart cities? How did you get here, and what yeah. were the what were the inflection points in your career? Well, it's definitely a uh, zigzag career, uh, going some here and some there, although. Looking back, it's got a theme, which is uh, technology is a powerful force. Uh, there's lots of ways to make organizations and society work better using technology, also ways to fight war, as we know from the Pentagon's work. Uh, so uh, all that culminated in the recent years in um, I was building the strategy for Polytechnic. It needed a new strategy, and we noted how big urban was getting and we were in new york city so we had an asset that most universities didn't have which was this great big city so we said let's make urban uh the theme as in 2005 so we're now 13 years ago uh, we did that for a while as an independent university and then uh, build up our prestige and why you needed a partner in engineering, we merged with NYU, and then I began building NYU's urban and innovation capacity. So that gave me a reach around the world, people I knew, projects I'd built. And uh, as I wrapped up my life at NYU, I said, uh, I got enough uh, in front of me yet, I'm going to try to uh, shape the future of cities. And we created a global futures group. And it's, can we drill down? So what was the 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 urban innovation landscape like in 2005? Well, it, was, uh, it wasn't real strong. There had been a government transformation a movement. Uh, Al Gore ended up picking up on it, but there were players before him. Uh, Gabler and Osborne he wrote a book called Reengineering uh, Government. And so there's a big government reengineering project, which kind of pushed out towards services for people. But it's pretty limited to what the government did, the Pentagon as a service provider or a city. Uh, so in 05, we began to think more about uh, all the pieces of society. And uh, it was pretty primitive then uh, compared to now because Uber didn't exist. Uh, iPhone didn't exist. So two of these sort of big aha moments, one that you can use GPS and the cloud and data to transform transportation or the taxi business, that didn't exist. And two, iPhone didn't exist. So you just didn't have the uh, kind of computing power, sensing power that everyone was piece of the big data system. Uh, okay, so now you move up to now and you see things happening everywhere. We have a book out about 12 agencies in New York City that over the last five years use data to get better. 
that wouldn't have happened in 2005, but it did happen in 2013, and we wrote about it. So it's, it's turned into a much more robust market, but it's not a finished market. Uh, if you think about, uh, let's take uh, airplanes. You start out with a lot of craftsmen making airplanes, this is and that, or automobiles. There were, what, 150 automobile companies in 1905. Slowly, you consolidate down. You begin to integrate all those pieces of uh, the car, begin to fit together in a new way. You didn't have traffic lights until 1923. The car is invented in 1884, 40 years later before you got a traffic light. So you, even the control systems to handle a technology take a while. Well, that's all happening now in the urban future. We're seeing pieces of. We'll talk about that. Yeah, I, I, I'm interested to to dig into this and and your your book called Smarter New York City. Um, it, but in in 2005, as you're standing up th- these urban tech, urban innovation projects um, through Poly and then um, NYU Poly, who what was the what was the ecosystem like who who was participating was it was it government led was it industry led was was there capital being being put into this um and how has that evolved over time to include um some of the agencies that you highlight in your book yeah in the beginning there wasn't much uh the uh board approved the strategy so i had their support and there were a lot number of corporate players so i had that much sort of validation the faculty, I think, was so-so about this. They viewed it as more of a uh, of a uh, marketing gambit than a true substance. So uh, uh, the beginning was pretty tentative. But we had a couple of breakthroughs. One was that um, one of the senior uh, execs, EVPs at NYU, uh, liked this idea of urban data and teamed up before we did the merger, uh, well before the merger. We were just two universities and said, let's try to write a big urban project, and we proposed it to the city. Uh, it didn't go, uh, it didn't take, uh, but it was a good enterprise because we started seeing there's there's legs to this, there's a power to this idea. Then the second thing that happened was Bloomberg got elected mayor in New York. This was a big deal that in, was a big in deal. this space. Yeah, because Bloomberg already built a fortune on a data system, Bloomberg Terminals. And then he built Bloomberg Communications. So he he knew, he'd experienced, I think, the power of consolidating data, presenting it in a way that people can act on it, and how it changes behavior in markets and turns into a phenomenon. So he becomes extremely wealthy doing this. He's also a pretty good manager. So he pushes his agencies. And three, he... Uh, he likes to in, he likes to entice people into the game through let's call it prizes or competitions or bait, uh, and he did that. And I'll tell you the story. It's a pretty interesting story. So the uh, city came to NYU and Columbia and said, uh, "We'd like to give you a lot of money, and how much would it change your behavior? Because we need more engineers and technicians in New York City, and we'd like to see the change." I would say both Columbia and NYU's response was, we're fully formed universities, give us the money, we know what to do with it, and you're not telling us what to do. I think Bloomberg's view of that was, that's not what I wanted. So he flips the equation and says, I'll do a competition, invite someone new to New York to kick ass. Interesting. So he does the 
science and technology competition and lures Stanford into it, then lures Cornell into it. Uh, NYU and Columbia, we can't ignore that. They're unhappy because they're like, well, weren't we good enough? Well, the answer was no, you really hadn't kicked butt the way I needed you to. So that's kind of a Bloomberg trait. And uh, so they ultimately, the winner was Cornell. Cornell's going to put $2 billion of their money into Roosevelt Island. And what Bloomberg put in was a derelict hospital that got knocked down and a piece of land, a real estate that's hard to get to. That's that's powerful. And he also got NYU to step up and do the Urban Data Center in Brooklyn, redid a whole building, created a whole new science of big urban data. Uh, so you got uh, a Columbia competed, Carnegie Mellon showed up and competed. So he got all kinds of new behavior by creating a competition. And, I, and they understand they don't have to run those universities. They can walk away and basically say, it's your job to figure out how to succeed, which is powerful because now you've got all the leadership of Cornell figuring out how to make $2 billion worth it. That changes a city. Uh, it, uh, competition works. Yes. Uh, um, so, okay, so so um, the Bloomberg administration supercharged some of these public-private efforts, and and now the, this work has been been ongoing for for a decade plus. Um, tell us about uh, smarter New York City. What, what what are you highlighting? Where's the the emanating power of urban innovation as experienced in New York City over a decade? Yeah. Well, the uh the book is a 12 case studies of city agencies. And we, uh, uh, Andre uh, Correa did the major leadership on this, but I helped him do this. And we thought the book up together. Uh, again, see how that worked. I got someone else to write the book and, uh, and, and he's become a good friend and he's become a player in urban innovation, which he wasn't when he started. So uh, that's a real gain for right. me and for the city and the nation and the world. So uh, we did 12 case studies, got universities each to sign up to do one of the case studies. So we engaged all the universities in town. Uh, so they had a graduate class, would do a case study, write it up. I think what we found, uh, you'll see it in my closing chapter, was all this is pretty uh, tentative, uh, pretty, uh, I would, you could use the word primitive if you think of we're in the beginning of a new marketplace called smart cities. They're, each is kind of individualistic. I had a problem, I tried to solve it. There's no big grand strategy. There's no big uh, grand solution that just says, this is what works. It's much more, uh, here's the problem I got in my agency. I'm trying to, uh, one, one case study is, uh, I'm looking at peak power and peak power costs a lot. So if I could cut down peak power at 2 p.m. and all the city agencies, I'd save a bunch of money and I'd collect actually a bonus from Con Ed the power company. So that was a struggle. You read the story. This wasn't easy. This was gritty, dirty, tough, get the agencies to cooperate, had to hand out money to every agency to get them to play. So you, um, you, you get the feeling in this book, and maybe someone else reading it from uh, fresh eyes might see some underlying themes, but us in the middle of it kind of felt it's kind of messy, gritty work. Uh, but I view this as a process. So we write the end, you know, there could be 
institutes in America talking about urban strategy and begin to develop a more coherent strategy. It could be integrators like big, like uh, uh, SAP or Oracle who showed up and said, uh, you don't have to buy a hundred solutions to make your city smart. You sign up with us and we plug in all kinds of solutions. We'll give you a menu, buy what you want. You want shot spotter for police, we'll give it to you. If you want ambulance controls, we'll give it to you. So I think we see that as an evolution. That's what the book showed. The other thing that, um, that happened in this same period was uh, Bloomberg uh, fell after the 08 crash. New York needed a more diverse economy. We did a number of things. I won't go into all of them. We looked at healthcare, education, uh, high tech, marketing, uh, Wall Street, fintech. And uh, among th one things we concluded, we needed more engineers and technicians. That's why we did the Cornell competition. But secondly, we needed more innovators. So he got a real estate firm, Trinity, had a lot of real estate, excess real estate, took some excess real estate, Poly teamed up, the city teamed up, and we created the first incubator in New York. Now there's what, 140 incubators in New York, but in the period of from 08 to now, we showed the model, people caught on, more people did it. Now you've got things happening everywhere. We're sitting in one now with 40 companies, all looking at urban innovation. Right. And there's a lot of these incubators in this town. So we transformed the New York economy, made it number two on venture deals, uh, only beat by Silicon Valley. Uh, so it's a big deal. And again, I think the Bloomberg secret, and we tried to emulate it too, was get other people's brains engaged, get other people into the game and let them be the, the solutions and the ideas. And then, the, then the, the pot just boils with new things. Let me ask you a question about the process of standing up the, the first incubator. Um, incubators tend to be one of these challenging um, terms mm -hmm. because people use them differently. Yeah. What was the model uh, for, for the first incubator? Was it was it uh, for students or for um, uh, community members? Was there was it a offer of space and some services or uh, was was there money involved? How, how did how was the initial model yeah. uh, uh, designed out and how has that changed over time? Yeah. Well, it, it's a great question because uh, we still face that question of incubators, accelerators, and what's the deal. So I, uh, we did it for a couple of reasons. One was I wanted to show our students that we cared about them inventing. So I needed a place for them to go and invent. Uh, the city wanted, uh, and I wanted more than that, I wanted a competitive place where I didn't just have faculty projects being pursued in another space. Right. Because that'd be a little tough faculty like to do research and like to look for the perfect solution. So they just keep doing lab work and lab work and research and they never get to the market. This wasn't a tech transfer that's what, that's right, right, effort, yeah. right? So we, we made a couple rules. One was uh, you had to team up if you were an engineer with a business partner. So you had business savvy. Two, uh, it wasn't just for our students or faculty. It was wide open for anyone who had a great idea because I wanted that marketplace competition. Right. You as a student got to be able to match whoever walked in. Mm -hmm. uh, three, we didn't take any equity and we didn't provide any money. We subsidized rent. Uh, we didn't take equity in large part because it was moving so fast. We didn't have time to figure out what to do. And we didn't want to 
make it hard for people to say yes and join. Right. Looking back, uh, we should take an equity because a couple of our uh, young companies, CB Insights, for instance, is now a breakout success. Yeah, breakout success. Think Echo is here in the building, up to 60 employees uh, selling product worldwide. So uh, Honest Buildings funded a couple rounds of funding. But when they were in the incubator, they, these are experiments. These, these experiments. are, these are two inception guys. stage, two, two guys and an idea. That's right. Two guys and an idea. And and there were another 20 that were as intriguing as them. And not every one of those turned into a mega success. But we had, overall, our track record was pretty good. We had a lot of, uh, they either got bought up and bought out into somebody or they stayed on their own and succeeded, that's CB Insights, or they did um, uh, funding rounds and are growing. And then usually someone buys them at some point, they hit a critical mass and they become part of a bigger enterprise. Was, was that because there, uh, the, the initial model was successful because there was latent energy? <laughs> that that, that this, this type of space yeah. did not exist before you built it? Well, that's, that's interesting. A combination, the, the first leaders, uh, Bruce Nicewander, uh, Micah Koch, first leaders were uh, exceptionally uh, innovative in their own way people. And so Bruce was very much a, uh, uh, a breakout, uh, uh, throw something into the frying pan and see what happens guy. Micah a little more uh, systematic. Uh, even had tensions inside the incubator with these styles of personalities. Sure. But we, we did really push... I didn't want a suited, staid manager of an incubator because uh, that was- Wrong vibe. That's right, wrong vibe. We had the other vibe. Uh, that caused a lot of grief in the university, by I'm the way. Sure. I, I, was that was like, my next question. Yeah. How, <laughs> how, is this, how is this routed through the university structures? <laughs> there was a lot of pushback about uh, these guys are out of control. These guys, uh, they don't have a theory. They uh, just do things. They party too much. And, uh, and I just, I kept them physically apart and I picked the best faculty I had and I, that cared the most and let them create companies over there. That began to build the linkage. I did another thing that if you're a university president, you want to think about the faculty love students. They love to do research and they love students and teaching. They weren't real hot on innovation and incubation and urban. So I told the rec undergraduate recruiting team, I want you to find me the, we have 500 students in our freshman class each year. I want you to find me the 500 most innovative, aggressive high school students you can find and tell them when they come to Poly, they're going to get the chance to build a company, create something new, be an innovator. And I want them looking, sitting in class, looking at the faculty and saying, don't teach me about the history of chemistry. Teach me about how I use chemistry to cure battle Applied wounds. Chemistry. That's right. Right. Get me in the game. How do you screen for that? How do you, how do you find <laughs> 500 high school students that have that have a propensity towards uh, innovation and or commercialization? What uh, when you only need 500, you can do it. In, sure, in, in sure. America. but, but does, does yeah. the SATs test for this? No, type? I don't think so. I don't no, think so. No. No. <laughs> you you got to have an interview and you got to see it in their eyes and you can see it maybe in their high school track record that right. they they already created something or they blew up the lab or they did something. Right, right. So. Um, 
so I see so you, you, you raise a point that I, that I, and I want to tie this back to um, smart cities movements. It sounds like the initial incubator model, the Bloomberg effort to create competition and, uh, and nodes of innovation requires some, some top cover, some executive leadership in order to see the, these efforts through. How important is that? Now, now you've zoomed out and you're doing this type of work all around the world. How important is executive leadership in the functional operations of creating innovation in yeah. cities? Yeah. It's, well, it's, it's critical, uh, but there's an intersection between the rise of technology and the needs of society. So you really have three going on at once. Uh, let's take an example out of the Navy. There was a uh, 1992, was an admiral named Arthur Sobrowski. He was really bright. Most people said, I don't know what he's talking about, but I'm sure he's bright. <laughs> so Art uh, began to see what we ultimately began to call network operations, where you netted things together. Uh, and the simple example would be that uh, you have two ships at sea and one's under missile attack. They see just the pinpoint of the missile coming at them. It's very hard to find with radar. But the ship alongside sees the side of the missile. It's a great big telephone pole. If you can net together that data, you now protect ship number one that's under attack. So use that as the metaphor. Sure. And that was a secret in 1995 that that was true. But now it's not a secret, so I can tell you. Thank you. So, so uh, but here's Art, who's basically a breakthrough, brilliant guy. He gets a couple of breakthrough teammates. Tom Barnett was one, is one. And they push this idea. But within five years, with their success, everybody in the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, the Marine Corps was being net-centric. Now you move to a second class of leaders who's a little bit more of a follower, Maybe a fast follower, but they're no longer Art Sobrowski. In fact, you probably don't want to be Art Sobrowski because you want them now to tease out the idea, to implement it, to put it in new places that require uh, more of a managerial skill set and right. less of an innovative skill set. So you get with, I think you give Mike Bloomberg credit for being pretty good in both zones uh, a good sees the future and a good uh, manager. And now, because he's very rich, uh, a good dispenser of that money to help others do it. So he's he's prototypical, but most of us aren't that rich. So we have to fall back a lot more on just sheer energy and drive of our ideas. Right. Which is okay. Uh, and that's the tension. You know, the really wild inventors often are um, uh, stigmatized, kind of pushed to the side. And some of them, of course, are wrong. And some are right. And we mainly read about the ones that are right, Bill Gates, but we don't read about the 100 others that probably at the same set of years, 1985, had equally provocative ideas that turned out didn't work out. So it's a tough, that, that beginning zone's tough. Right. And what's the order of operations here? A, a city comes to Jerry and Global Futures Group and says, we, you know, we want to create, uh, we want to become a smart city. We want to create mechanisms of innovation. How do we start? What do we do first? What is, what is the process look like? What, wh how do you advise these, these city leaders? Yeah. Uh, 
my report would be it's it's been hard. Uh, not that we don't have ideas. You can see I've got a lot of ideas about where this could go. Uh, a couple reasons it's hard. One is uh, each city is somewhat unique. So what it needs is not the same as what the other needs. Singapore doesn't need what uh, Des Moines needs. Not just in case of size, but Singapore is 20 years in front of. I'm going to use Des Moines as a model. Sure. So, uh, so you just need different solutions. Two entirely. Can I just ask a yeah. question? It, are are they entirely different solutions, or is there is there a a base level of city needs that, regardless of the unique characteristics, yeah. each city. Uh, has to have well you could say the base level is this a the definition we use for smart city it's a city that uses sensors information data the cloud analytical uh, algorithms etc to learn uh, and to make the quality of life better for its citizens that that's a baseline be true for all cities whether it's nairobi or whether it's new york city the problem is that doesn't really answer the question and what do i do right <laughs> Uh, so then you you have to move from that to a more specific analytical process of, well, what's your big problem? And not only what is your big problem, what are the technologies that are available that you could implement? And three, what will your citizens uh, both respond to as uh, that's a gain and won't react against that's an intrusion in my privacy or in my life and I don't want it. So now the, the mix gets pretty uh, hard to figure out. Uh, cities like Singapore, uh, some of the Chinese cities were planning and uh, sort of strong government leadership is pretty high, uh, move faster. They run the risk of getting out of touch with their citizens, but they do move faster. Places like Delhi and uh, even New York City move slower because they're more dispersed, more democratic. Uh, therefore, you don't have a single point of decision. So uh, th then beyond that, uh, I think what we begin more and more to tell mayors and what I think mayors think is what you really want to do is create a city where talent decides to move to you. You make them smarter and you keep them, you retain them. And that's your real question, because if that talent's in your city, everything else we've been talking about happens. Incubators get created, new companies, solutions People create happiness, people lead good lives. So create that mix and then let people's energy and brains take over and turn your city into whatever it's gonna become. Uh, so more and more we're focusing on these issues of quality of life uh, and of uh, quality of education, skill training. Could be even more important when machines begin to really produce most of the goods and even services because then People will have to be smarter than those machines to have a good life and will want to be happy. And that equation, that life is still being built. So talent can be organic. It could be localized already um, mm -hmm. or it can be um, attracted to a city. And then it needs to – talent needs to uh, come together in interesting and creative ways. It needs to be – given the, the time and, and sort of freedom to, to discover and, and, and experiment. But it seems to me to be a really interesting opportunity for um, cities that want to become smart. One of the, the big trends in the workplace is that workers are no longer tethered to 
a specific desk in a specific location, there's this very large, important movement of having decentralized teams, having remote work. And seemingly, if you're able to accomplish tasks in Des Moines and pay Des Moines prices, uh, that option becomes much more viable vice having to do it on in in one of a handful of cities with very high cost of living and 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 other issues. Is that is that right? Well, well, it it certainly appears right in theory. Uh, you have the feeling that would be the case. The practice is not so clear. Uh, expensive as New York, Paris, Shanghai, Singapore, even Delhi are, people keep moving there. So there's. The, I think there's an equation going on, which is, well, the price is high, but the return is pretty high, too. So the creative mix is higher. The intersection with opportunity is higher. The markets may be more robust. You can sell quicker. But if I'm sitting, a couple other things to say about that. Usually those big cities have some great universities, so they have an engine that is creating talent. So if I was in a city, let's say a second-tier city in the world that didn't have a great university, I would worry about or figure out how to create some kind of education system that didn't require a university. And we ought to be able to do that with technology. We don't do right. it very well yet, but we will probably get better. Uh, and so, see, as the technology shifts and the prices shift related to delivering a service, the opportunity moves. Let's take uh, an example that's more current. So, Malaysia has risen up to uh, middle-class standards for most of its people. 20,000 a year, getting close to 20,000 a year of the uh, US dollar GDP per person. They, they base that on labor arbitrage, which was their labor was cheaper than US labor. They moved a lot of manufacturing, chips, clothing, things. Well, when robots arrive and really get good, and they're getting pretty good, a robot in US, a robot in Malaysia, about the same price. So suddenly I can make it in the US and I get rid of transportation costs. I get rid of cultural uh, inconsistencies, time lag. So Malaysia is gonna be put on the point of, well, what is it we do that gives our people a livelihood? Because these machines are either gonna be here in our country because we're gonna have to adopt them or we won't be uh, competitive. And we run the risk that the machines are actually back in the US or in Europe. Uh, so what do we do? So what works for 30 years, 40 years, then technology shifts and the whole globe realigns. And uh, I think we're in the midst of that right now. If, if we're thinking about uh, smart cities and, and urban innovation um, as, a, as an ecosystem, we've talked a lot about uh, process and, and leadership. But maybe we need to sort of identify what the core ingredients are. You just mentioned a university. It seems to be very difficult to create a robust ecosystem without a anchor type of university that has a repeatable process of creating human capital that could then uh, sort of source the the ecosystem. So if a university is one core ingredient, what are other elements that either need to be that need to be in place already or that need to be grown in order to uh, facilitate a vibrant ecosystem? The, uh, 
the first answer is uh, a set of things which would be green space for people to feel good about living, relatively uncongested transportation, affordable housing. Those two are linked. Good transportation systems let you disperse your housing a little more. Uh, the the uh, you need curious capital. You need some money that is willing to take risks so that you create new things. Uh, and you uh, and you need this leadership feature usually to make that happen in a city. So uh, those are the basics. But see what's going to happen is the Chinese cities realize this. So their, their mayors, who are quite powerful in their own right in China, they get orders from headquarters about you need to be smart. But they don't get a recipe on how to be smart. That's for them to figure out. Right. So they want to show off. They only want to be Xi Jinping. So to do that, they've got to create the best city in China. Right. So you've got this potential race to quality up the ladder of great cities. Uh, so then the game changes because now it may be, uh, well, I have the cleanest air. Not quite true in China today. Or I have the best health, best health care. Uh, you live longer. I mean, Mike Bloomberg brags, you live three years longer in New York City than you do in other cities in America because of less sugar and because you run up and down subway steps. Right. So Takes uh, its toll. That's <laughs> right. So uh, the, uh, the standard will shift as the best cities get better and everyone else tries to catch up. And, of course, the... The fun will be the I would call them the leapfrog, leapfrog cities, the ones that either, let's say, in Africa say, well, I don't have that much of a city now. Why don't I just jump right ahead to this new model, total connectivity? No one goes to work in an office and I provide the best software programming in the world at the best prices. No one said that yet in Africa, but someone could. Uh, those leapfrogs then put New York back on in play because New York's expensive and heavy and got this old industrial base, which gives it some charm, but also drags it down. The subway system, you can't put a modern subway system in New York. You could put a modern subway system in a new city in India. Right. So it seems to me, uh, one of the elements that I find most interesting about the smart cities conversation is the element of quality of life. The idea that we that we are not robots we, we we operate with within smart cities our work is one part of of our overall uh well-being um and and things like green spaces and and access to nature and air quality are certainly important but there's i think there's sort of a next generation of quality of life considerations that i think you're working on on trying to understand how people will spend time and, and what they're going to do with that time and 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 how they can find meaning uh can you talk a little bit about that yeah, yeah we we come out of the agricultural society where most of us are peasants and that's kind of the given order uh, we moved to the industrial society where Overall, I say life gets better, but we are sort of taught uh, color inside the lines, uh, um, get to work on time, and work defines you. Uh, and I think you're right. We look like we're moving into a new zone where a lot of the work that was done in the factories will be done by machines and we'll ride on top of that production. Uh, so it, it gets to the question, well, what do you do with time uh, and what fulfills you? 
uh, there's a couple of ways to get at it. You could be a psychologist and study people and see what makes them happy. Or look at Sweden. Sweden's been up and down the too much money, too many suicides, too socialistic. They revert back to a somewhat more market-based socialism. Now they actually get any right-wing kickback on that. So it, it's, it's a moving process. People, generation by generation, ambitions change. But Helsinki and a couple other cities, uh, Dubai, Dubai committed to being, quote, the happiest city. Uh, Bhutan created a happiness index, uh, the happiest country. Uh, Finland, Helsinki created a... Um, a strategy called most functional city, meaning in their case, it's the city where you get the most done. You can get the most out of life, uh, accomplish the most and have the least drag on your life. So one of the neighborhoods has a project that uh, they, I call at least a one hour a day project, which is to give everybody back an hour a day of wasted time. So you there's a lot of wasted that time. Sounds ambitious, it but, is. Uh, yeah. but uh, honorable. It is. And, and, uh, you know, wasted time is a, a bit of a question of in the eyes of the beholder. I mean, is driving to work in a traffic jam wasted if you're listening to NPR and you're on your cell phone talking to your or this podcast or this podcast? That's right. It's an exciting time. It's worth every every dollar <laughs> you're spending. So. So. so but but. Overall, you could say time waiting for a bus to arrive, standing in the rain is a waste. Right. And uh, so how can you eliminate those? And technology gives you lots of sources. Uh, but there's other ways. Let's, let's take if you're walking your kids to school, that may be valuable to walk them to school. But it may be that the reason you're walking to school is because the streets are unsafe. If the streets were safe, you would be more inclined to say, you can walk to school. I'm going to work. Uh, so there's all these trade-offs that, you know, we get blinded to because life's the way it is. And I, I'd like to begin thinking about how you give everybody back a productive hour. Uh, I, I did the math. 50 cents. If you took every hour is worth 50 cents, that's mm -hmm. a really low value, mm -hmm. but 50 cents. If everyone got an hour back every day a week, all adults, I skipped, skipped the kids. The value of that alone is a trillion dollars of recovered time at 50 cents an hour. So globally, globally. So it's uh, it's powerful. It, it, and it has the, the other reason I like this idea and why I'm going to go back to Helsinki and spend more time there is uh, it takes these rather uh, uh, high level goals like the sustainable development goals that say life should be better across all kinds of sectors, which it should. It kind of turns it into a more tangible, well, okay, here's what I get from this big ambition is I get an hour of I can teach myself a skill. I can uh, cook better meals for my family. I can read the book I never could read. So let's see what happens. Okay. Um, can we just close up yep. with some rapid fires? Yep. What uh, other than your book, Smarter New York City, yeah. um, what what things should we be reading about smart cities and about the, these movements? Yeah. Well, there are there are a lot of there are a number of nice books out now on cities. Uh, there's the Well Tempered City by Jonathan Rose. There's a Happy City. Uh, so just get up and Google uh, Happy Smart uh, Cities. You'll see ten or twelve books. They're all trying to figure out these questions we've been talking about. Okay. So those are good. Uh, the second thing is I would. Uh, uh, poke around and uh, like 
uh, GovTech is a uh, newsletter on mm -hmm. the web. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a set of those. As soon as you start digging in, you'll find there's about 10 of the Route 50, uh, Smart and Resilient Cities, Smart City Council. Uh, start reading about the examples. The examples are in the thousands, too many to keep track of. So you'll get pumped up because you'll suddenly say, wow, this is far more going on than I think is recognized. Uh, and then start uh, thinking about, well, what would I invent or who would I team up with or what would I do in my city or how to turn it into action. Great. And where can listeners find can find where can listeners find you and Global Futures Group yeah. on online? So the uh, website is www.globalfuturesgroup.co. Uh, so there's a little bit about us there. Uh, you can write us at uh, jerry at globalfutures.co. Um, there's a smartcitiesnewyork.com. Talks about the big expo we put on. Uh, and uh, so send me a note. I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn, Jerry Halton. So great. Jerry Holton, thanks so much. Nice discussion. Thank Appreciate you. it. Thank you. That does it for this episode of Super Cities. Before we go, some real talk. Cities feel broken, too expensive, too crowded, too chaotic. So we created Super Cities to elevate the people and trends moving cities forward. This movement is just getting started. So please rate, review, and subscribe to Super Cities and tag us using hashtag SuperCities. Your support really helps, and I'm thankful for it. This is Brendan Hart and Super Cities, signing off for now.